0: And once again, good morning. Good to see you all. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2? If you're new with us, we welcome you and uh, let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And for the past few weeks, we've been in chapter 2, studying primarily verses 13 to 17, where Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, The temple of God was supposed to be a holy place, a place of reverence, a place where man and God could connect, a place where people could come to find God. But uh, the Sadducees and chief priests had turned it into a money-making business. They were selling animals at exorbitant prices for sacrifice, uh, exchanging Roman currency into temple shekels at exorbitant exchange rates, basically ripping people off who had come to worship God. That's why Jesus called it a den of thieves. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And so he cleansed it. He just drove out the animals, turned over the money tables. Well, this so infuriated the Jews. Whenever John uses the term the Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He's talking about primarily the Jewish religious leadership. Those that were in charge of the nation, those that right here were in charge of The temple, that would be the Sadducees and the uh, chief priests and all. So when Jesus drove out the animals, turned over the money tables, uh, wow, uh, their business was really going to suffer. And uh, they had gotten used to making a lot of money off of people who had come to worship God. And so they were furious. And so they charged over to Jesus and demanded a sign. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? First of all, guys, in saying this, they're challenging Jesus' authority. They're demanding to know by whose authority does he have the right to stop the temple concessions. Again, the selling of animals for sacrifice and the changing of money. Now, listen, I'm pretty sure they knew what he was going to say. I'm convinced of that. This was not... Something new that Jesus, you know, he had been proclaiming himself to be Messiah all over Israel. So I'm convinced that uh, they believed he was going to say, well, by whose authority? By the authority of God who sent me here to be Israel's Messiah. And since they anticipated what Jesus was going to say, they preemptively challenged him to give them a sign from heaven to prove he was sent from God. The Greek word for sign is a word that means miracle. They want to see a miracle that would prove to them he is really from God. Look, all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the Jewish religious leadership constantly challenging, constantly challenged him to prove that he was the Messiah, the true Messiah of Israel, sent by God. We see them challenge him throughout the Gospels. Another one would be in Matthew 12. In fact, you might want to kind of zip over there. Matthew 12, verse 38, the Pharisees, I think, and the scribes came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Um, You have to wonder just what they wanted Jesus to do in the way of a miracle. Uh, By this time, Matthew 12, I'm thinking of, I mean, he had already healed the sick and the physically handicapped. He had cast out many demons out of people he had even raised the dead so uh what more did they want well see here's the thing luke tells us they actually said we want you know he says uh, they uh, they actually said show us a sign from heaven show us a sign from heaven it seems that they had rejected all the miracles that jesus had done up until this point why because in their minds A lot of prophets did stuff like this. Elijah raised the dead. Uh, A lot of other prophets worked miracles. I mean, he says he's the Messiah, but, you know, uh, he needs to prove to us he's the Messiah, and not just maybe a run-of-the-mill prophet, if you can put it that way. Um, Because we've seen other prophets, or other prophets in our history have done similar miracles. And um, they're basically saying if Jesus was really the Messiah as he claimed to be, well, they wanted to see something spectacular as a sign to prove it. They, they wanted a sign from heaven. Uh, they wanted something to happen, I guess, in the sky. I don't know if they're looking for some kind of divine fireworks display uh, or something, but um, they wanted something unmistakably heavenly, <laughs> something that had never been done before, basically. Now, Jesus would not appease their hunger for the sensational. But he said God would give them a sign that had never been done before or since in the history of the world. Matthew 12, verse 39. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, of course, before raising from the dead. But Jesus said the final and ultimate sign that God would give to authenticate him as the true Messiah and Son of the living God was going to be the resurrection. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I mean, God raised people from the dead before Jesus in the Old Testament and others have been raised by God since. So how can you say that Jesus' resurrection was a sign that had never been done? Well, it's true that others were raised from the dead before Jesus and even after Jesus, but listen, they all died again. They all died again. and Jesus was the only one who was resurrected from the dead, never to die again. That is until the time of the rapture. Because at the time of the rapture, all those who have died in Christ, all those saints that have gone before us and are in the grave are going to be resurrected and glorified, and then we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. And at that point, death will be no more for us. Okay, we won't ever see death because we were taken, raptured while we were still alive on the earth. Uh, Those who were dead, those who died, bodies buried, they will be resurrected. We'll all get our glorified bodies. So, Jesus said in John 10, which we will study in a few years, when we get there, (laughs) because I live, you shall live also. Right? In other words, because I live never to die again, you will live never to die again as well. So, guys, In John 2, when these Jewish religious leaders demand that Jesus show them a sign to confirm, without doubt, something spectacular, something in the sky, something that would be absolutely, totally unlike anything that any prophet ever did to prove that Jesus was the one and only true Messiah of Israel sent by God. When, you know, when Jesus, these guys came to him in John 2, He tells them basically the same thing he would tell other leaders down the road in Matthew 12. And we read about it in verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. Show us a sign. Prove that you have the authority to do these things. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Now guys, since they're all standing there in the temple precinct, which was the area that had the complex of buildings and courts surrounding the temple proper, they assumed he was referring to the literal temple building, especially because he uses the Greek word naas. Destroy this naas. That was the word we talked about a few weeks ago that described the temple building, the temple proper, uh, the building with the holy place and the holy of holies in it. And so they assumed he was talking about the literal temple building. And we'll come back to that in a second. Let me stop and say this. The temple in Jerusalem at that time was not the temple that was built by Solomon. I'm sure most of you know that. Solomon built the first temple on Jerusalem's Mount Moriah in around the year 1050 BC. More than 400 years later, the Babylonians utterly destroyed Jerusalem, and with it, that temple in 586. After the 70-year Babylonian captivity was over and the Jews were allowed to go back to the land of Israel, As soon as they got back, the building of the second temple began around 536 under Zerubbabel and Joshua. It was completed in 519, but understand it was a relatively low-budget operation when compared with the glory and the expense of Solomon's magnificent structure, which at his time, in his day, the temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was that beautiful. So they got this low-budget deal. In fact, it even tells us when they came back from Babylonian captivity and they laid the foundation for the temple. It says that the young men were cheering. We're going to have a temple again. The old men who had seen Solomon's temple were weeping because this was a low-budget operation compared to Solomon's temple. Okay, But they had a temple. Okay, They had a temple. 500 years later, King Herod the Great shows up and begins building what some scholars and historians refer to as the Third Temple in 20 B.C. Now, the reason I say that not all scholars and historians call it the Third Temple is because it really wasn't a new build. They weren't building anything from scratch. But rather, it was a massive reconstruction project of Zerubbabel's temple. You see, Herod the Great wanted to garner um, support from the Jewish people. Rome had put him over them as their king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And uh, because he wasn't even Jewish but had the title king of the Jews, well, the Jewish people just despised him. And he gave him a lot of reason to also. He was not a nice guy. But uh, but he did want to live with these folks and, and try to be a good leader. Otherwise, Rome would remove him. And so to garner um, favor with the Jewish people, King Herod set upon a, um, a, re- a, a, re- a renovation, an expansion, a beautification of the temple. It took 46 years, as we said, to accomplish. But um, he uh, refurbished the temple building. He expanded the temple precincts, 30-some uh, acres. And it was a phenomenal place. Again, it had become... One of the wonders of the ancient world. Jews from, Pilgrims from all over the world would come to see this magnificent temple, sometimes called the Third Temple, sometimes called Herod's Temple, but you get the idea. It was this temple that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, verse 2, that not one stone shall be left upon another. All will be cast down. All will be cast down. Well, Thirty-eight years after Jesus' resurrection, this, his prophecy came to pass. While sacking the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Romans burned the temple. The fire was so hot that it melted the gold in the ceilings, and the ceiling, and it the gold ran down the walls, uh, lodged in the cracks of these massive stones. And so, to get the gold, the Roman soldiers took apart the temple building stone by stone to get the gold. Threw all the stones into the Tropian Valley today. They did such a good job of of removing the temple from where it had once stood. Archaeologists and historians don't even know for sure where it originally sat. God does, and he's going to rebuild it, or the Antichrist will back it during the tribulation period. And you could get the study in Matthew 24, Romans, excuse me, Revelation 11, if you're interested in this. But getting back to our text, so... They're furious. He's cleansed the temple. He's cut into their business and all. And uh, so they demand a sign from him. And uh, he says, look, the only sign you're going to get is destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, I should say. Three days I will raise it up. Then verse 20, the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had uh, risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, let me key in on verse 22, and then we'll go back to Jesus' resurrection for a little bit. It's important to realize that miracles by themselves will never force a person to believe in Jesus. However, as the disciples of Jesus demonstrated, a miracle will help bring out a person's faith if, listen, if they are willing and open to believe in Jesus. Look, the word of God by itself is living and powerful. We know that Hebrews 4.12 tells us that. The word of God is living and powerful and can save people all by itself, if I could put it that way, without being accompanied by a miracle. Peter said this in 1 Peter 1.23, that we have been born again, the people of God, Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God. Now, in the case of Jesus' disciples, it took a miracle from God to confirm their faith in the word. Again, we read verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And let me paraphrase. And then... They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So guys, it was the miracle of the resurrection that caused them to believe that the scriptures, and there's numerous scriptures that talk about clearly or allude to Messiah's resurrection. The most clear, no doubt the first one on their mind that day, uh, when it says they believed the scriptures was, uh, was Psalm 16 verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That very clearly talking about, the resurrection of Messiah. But also then, coupled with the word of Jesus, which he spoke right here in John two nineteen, um, it took the miracle of his resurrection, though, to confirm in their hearts that God's word basically was true. Look, whenever a person needs to have something supernatural happen before they will fully believe what God has said, well, it proves their faith is small and not very strong. You remember the night of the resurrection. The disciples were all in an upper room somewhere cowering because they believed the Romans were coming for them next to crucify them. So they're, they're hiding out. They're terrified. Suddenly Jesus walks right through the walls. He stands right in their midst, right? They're shocked at first. They think he's a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Ghost doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see I have. Then he talks to them, engages them, you know, talks to them about the ministry he's going to send them uh, to do. And it's not going to be easy. They first, pers- you know, he really it out, right? Well, then Jesus goes, but Thomas wasn't there at that time. Finally, Thomas comes back and the guys are all excited and say, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He was here. And what did Thomas say? Oh, get out of here. I'm not going to believe until I can put my finger in the in the nail prints in his hand and my hand and the spear wound in his side. A week later, they're all in the upper room now, Thomas included. And Jesus comes right through the walls, walks over to Thomas and says, Come here, son. Take your finger, put it in the nail prints of my hands, and your hand put it in the spear wound in my side. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And what did Thomas do? He probably fell to his knees and cried, My Lord and my God. And Jesus responded by saying, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who simply have God's word and believe in God's word as being true. They don't have to have a miracle. Uh, They don't have to have some supernatural spectacular sign. God's word is good enough. They believe in their heart. God's word is true. It's infallible. And what God has said, it's as good. If it hasn't happened, it definitely will. And so on. I say all this because several years ago, there was a teaching that came blowing through the church. (laughs) Remember Paul talked about winds of doctrine? Well, this one came blowing through the church. It was called power evangelism. It was a word of faith doctrine. And basically, what they were teaching was that you can't really evangelize people. They won't really get saved unless you can accompany the preaching of the word with miracles. Power evangelism is the idea. Well, it was easily refuted and was refuted because there are many verses that talk about the power of God's Word to save without any miracles, okay? Uh, one of those will be in John 10, verses 41 and 2, where it says, Many came to Jesus and said, Look, John performed no miracle, John the Baptist, but all things that John spoke about this man, about you, Jesus, were true, and many believed. Many believed in the preaching of John the Baptist. Many believed in the Messiah, because John was a man sent from God who spoke God's truth. And they were pointing out that John didn't do any miracles, but he did quite a ministry in bringing people to the Messiah. Okay. Well, years later, Paul the Apostle would write in Romans 10, 17, he said, so then faith comes by hearing... And hearing by the word of God. He didn't say faith comes by hearing the word and miracles. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Again, again, guys, it's important to realize that miracles by themselves won't force people to believe in Jesus if they don't want to. Even if it's something as spectacular as the miracle of resurrection. Turn to Luke 16. I want to start in verse 19, but let me paraphrase the first part of this story. It's a story, not a parable. I say that because in a parable, nobody is ever named. This In this story, one of the guys, the two main characters, is named. And Jesus said, look, there were two guys, basically. One was a rich man, unnamed. The other was a diseased beggar named Lazarus. Now, the rich man wore purple, which was the colors of a king. So he lived like a king, <laughs> thought himself to be a king in a sense, uh, just lived it up. He was wealthy, ate the finest food, just lived like a king. Every day, someone, probably some friends, brought Lazarus. The implication was Lazarus was a believer, but the rich man was not. That's the implication. But every day, Lazarus' friends would take him and he, they would lay him at the gate of this rich man, hoping... The rich man would have some compassion on him and give him some of the crumbs that fell from his table. But the rich man couldn't care about anybody. He didn't care about Lazarus. He didn't care about anybody. All he cared about was by himself, about himself. So in the course of time, Jesus said, the, um, La- Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's a place in the center of the earth in Hades. A place in the before Christ came. Uh, was had two compartments. One, a place of paradise known as Abraham's bosom, where believers went before Christ died for their sins. They couldn't leave there. It was a kind of a, uh, a it was a prison, but a paradise. They were comforted. And then you had a big, giant gulf, like the Grand Canyon. And then on the other side was this place of torment, uh, where unbelievers went. And by the way, the Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, before He ascended into heaven, He first descended into the lower parts of the earth and let the captives free. And took them all to heaven because he had died for their sins. Their sins were, were paid for. Um, Paul says right now, as, as a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't go to this Abraham's bosom anymore. Uh, the other side, of course, the side of torment still very much in operation. And those folks will stay there, unbelievers, until the great white throne judgment, which is in Revelation 20. You can read about that. So anyways, the, Lazarus is being comforted in Abraham's bosom in the paradise side of this place. The rich man, lifting up his eyes, sees Lazarus afar off, being comforted by Abraham, and he yells across the gulf, Father Abraham, will you please send Lazarus over to me that he might dip his finger in some water and touch it to my tongue as I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, son, don't you remember that during your life you had the blessings, you had it easy, and and Lazarus had all the bad stuff. Now he's being comforted and you're being punished. Besides this, though, we can't come over to you and you can't come over here because of the great gulf that is between us. Now, verse 27. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's house. It's amazing how this man became so evangelistically minded after he died. There are many people who have heard the gospel that have rejected it who are going to become very evangelistically oriented after they die. Because after you die and you wind up in a place like this, well, everything is put in perspective. You realize that, you know what? I really blew it. Eventually those in in this place of torment in Hades are going to be cast into the lake of fire hell. It's just something to understand that the devil's got everybody all wrapped up with material things and uh, earthly experiences, laying treasures up for themselves on the earth. None of that matters. And if they don't accept Christ and they die in their sins, the very second they wind up in this place of torment everything is going to come into perspective and they're going to say to themselves why didn't I listen to that Christian I worked with or that person uh, that friend of mine that I wrote off when they became a Christian or my wife or my husband who was a Christian the lesson here at this point is don't wait to get your priorities straight today is the day of salvation. But, anyways, this guy gets very evangel, very concerned for the lost after he died. Now, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. In other words, they have the Word of God, they can read the, the Bible. <laughs> The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they won't read and believe the word of God, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man didn't believe in God's word. But a miracle, oh, he believed like sending Lazarus back from the dead, something spectacular like that, well, that would force his brothers to believe. It's interesting that Jesus did raise somebody from the dead whose name happened to be Lazarus, not this guy in Luke 16, but he did raise a guy from the dead who was named Lazarus, right? Did everybody who saw the resurrected Lazarus get saved? How about the Jewish leadership? Absolutely not. You know what they wound up doing? Killing him again. Poor Lazarus, right? I mean, he was, he was a witness. It says that people would come to his house when Jesus preached, and they would come in part just to see Lazarus, alive from the dead. He was having a tremendous impact, okay? Uh, getting, people were getting saved just because this guy had come back from the dead. And the Jewish leadership said, we can't have this. Let's kill him again, okay? Wow, uh, rough day. But, but anyway... So, you know, um, and and, and of course, the Lord Jesus himself rose from the dead. I mean, did that force everyone to believe? Of course not. I mean, look, once again, a miracle can bring faith where there's a willingness to hear the truth of God and believe. Also, a miracle can strengthen faith where it already exists. But a miracle will never force anyone to believe who is unwilling and hard-hearted. And guys... That's primarily why when Jesus told these hard-hearted Jewish leaders the sign to confirm he was Messiah and God incarnate would be, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They responded, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days? He didn't correct them, did he? He didn't even bother correcting them. John tells us in verse 21, he was talking about the temple of his body. So Jesus knew they had misinterpreted, obviously, what he had said. You think he said, oh, oh, time out, guys, wait a minute, no, no, no. I'm not talking about, you thought I was talking about the literal temple, but no, no, no. I'm talking about the temple of my body. He didn't say that. He didn't correct them. Why? For the same reason, he stopped teaching plainly at one point and started teaching with parables and only explained them to his disciples. Why? Because after hearing the gospel for so many, so, for so much, so many times, so many in Israel had so hardened their hearts that they still didn't believe, didn't want to believe. And so Jesus now made it very difficult for them to believe. Turn to Matthew 13. Remember, up until this point, the Lord Jesus has been teaching very simply, very simply, very straightforwardly, using illustrations that they all could connect with, very simple farming illustrations and things. They were all farmers, basically. But now we're maybe halfway through his ministry, and some of these folks have listened to, in some of these towns, had heard him preach on numerous occasions and had so hardened their hearts they weren't receiving the truth anymore. So Jesus Christ begins to teach in parables. These kind of cryptic stories, it kind of took the disciples back that he started doing this. They said in verse 10, they said, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. Those that listen with an open heart, a pure heart, they're receiving the truth, they'll get more truth. I'll give them more insight. Those who will listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. This is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. Now they're, they're, they're looking, but they're not really perceiving anything. They're dull of heart. Um, they hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, When you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. Well, that's because that was a prophecy of Messiah and uh, working miracles and preaching the gospel. And yet so many in Israel were so hard-hearted, the Jewish leaders were the top of the list, that they just weren't buying it. They weren't receiving it. And so now, if you don't want the truth, you don't deserve the truth, is the idea. And so parables can either be used to reveal truth or they can be used to hide truth as Jesus is now using them in Matthew 13 against the scribes and Pharisees. And listen, anyone else who had constantly hardened their hearts to the gospel. Guys, listen, there comes a point in the life of every unbeliever, a person who continually rejects the light of God's truth, where God says enough is enough, and he basically turns the lights out. Their eyes are now blinded to the truth. At that point, the opportunity for salvation has been officially withdrawn, they have passed the spiritual point of no return and have committed what Jesus would call the bla- call blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The day of grace has ended for them and their eternal destruction is sealed. And listen, I believe uh, that this group of religious leaders fell into that category. That's why he didn't explain it to them. That's why he, he knew their hearts were so hard. He knew they weren't open to truth. Look, even the Lord Jesus, when he came into a town to preach the truth, if they hardened their hearts, he said they shook the dust off and went somewhere else and told us to do the same. That's why on the morning of his crucifixion, when Pilate didn't want to deal with him, because he knew he was an innocent man, and drop-kicked the Lord into Herod's lap, who was in town for the feast, and when Jesus went to Herod, this is not Herod the Great, by the way, it's his son, Herod Antipas, uh, but when Herod saw him, he was tickled. This is the guy that does the miracles. He was hoping that Jesus would do a few miracles for him, kind of entertain him. It says Jesus wouldn't even answer him. Herod asked him some questions. Jesus gave him no answer at all because Herod did not have an open heart. Herod, had, Herod knew who Jesus was. If he was that open-hearted, he could have talked to anyone of a number of people that had gotten saved through his ministry or gone to seeing Jesus personally himself. No, Jesus was a novelty to him. Maybe a source of entertain me. You know, people come to church to be entertained a lot of times. How sad. How sad the churches cater to that and basically, you know, orchestrate their services to basically entertain people. That's sad to me. That's sad. Well, if we don't, they won't come. Then maybe they're not ready to come. Maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit has not worked enough in their heart where they're wanting the truth of God. You're giving them, you know, you know a, th- a show. A lot of people will come to see a show that won't come to hear the truth of God. So I think this group of men had hardened their hearts. To the, Jesus knew the heart. We're going to see that next week in verses 23 to 25. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts were hardened. Therefore, he doesn't even correct them when they misinterpret what he is saying he's speaking spiritually they're thinking practically and that's part of the that was part of the point he didn't just say this clearly he purposely couched his words in, in in a way that you would have to be spiritually minded you would have to have the ears opened by the spirit to understand what he was saying now let's return to the heart of this passage and we bring this so close of course, the heart of the passage and foundation upon which our salvation rests is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is so foundational to Christianity that anyone who denies the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be a genuine Christian because it is an essential doctrine for salvation. You see, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no Christian faith, no salvation, no hope for a man. Paul the Apostle made this very clear to the Corinthians who had gotten a hold of some bad teaching, a heresy. Uh, Somebody told them that there is no resurrection, the dead don't rise. And so they were embracing this. And Paul wrote them back when he heard about it and said, We got a real problem, guys. You don't understand. If the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen. Let me paraphrase what he said to them in chapter 15 If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is useless. Your faith is meaningless. We are still in our sins. Those who have died believing in Christ are lost, and we are of all men the most pathetic. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for there is nothing more to life than this, is basically what he told them. However, he was speaking, you know, um, hypothetically. He said, but listen, now Christ is risen from the dead. Okay, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, and aren't we glad he said that? But listen, Christ is, now Christ is risen from the dead, And is the first fruits from the grave of those who have died believing in him. Because when the rapture happens, the great harvest of souls comes. Because those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected. Because Jesus lives, we will live as well. Let me just say this, guys. The two essential doctrines that a person must believe to be saved are the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the divinity of Christ. Those are the two doctrines that you must believe if you want to go to heaven, and the two that Satan has attacked ever since Jesus rose from the dead, and before that, uh, he attacked the fact he wasn't the Son of God. The point is, though, that um, these are the two essential doctrines, and of course, all the cults, I'm talking about, I think of the Christian cults, Mormons, Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, other Christian scientists, they will attack one or both, usually both of these doctrines. So Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily, he was a phantom. Uh, He was a God, a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God, J.W.S. But we know, we've covered this extensively when we first opened John's Gospel. Because John was presenting the deity of Christ to start things off with. But these two doctrines, listen to what Paul said, because Paul then succinctly Put them together in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You could really translate that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Not a Lord, not a God, not one of many roads that lead to heaven. He is almighty Jehovah God, second person of the Trinity. If you confess that Jesus is God and believe in your heart, God is raised from the dead, what? You shall be saved. Essential doctrines for salvation. And both of those doctrines are embedded in the sign that Jesus spoke of in John 2, 19. Let me read it again. Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, first of all, he prophesied to these religious leaders that there would come a day when they would kill him. At this point, they didn't like him. They may have hated him, but they hadn't come to a point where they were plotting to kill him. Not yet. That would happen later on down the road. So right here he's telling these guys, look, the day is coming when you guys are going to kill this body. But in three days, I'm going to raise it up. So obviously, three days later, the resurrection is going to happen. So the resurrection is presented in this verse. That's pretty obvious. But notice that the Lord says that he would be the one who would raise his body from the dead, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's deity talking, guys. Only God is the power of life and death. Only God can raise the dead. Turn to John 10. You know, I love John 10. By the time we get there, Jesus will probably have been back a couple years. Well, I'll let him teach it, okay? But anyway, it's a great chapter if we hang in long enough to make it. Uh, But I'll just just pick out some of the verses. It's a great chapter. Verse 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. The word is in the Greek, intimately. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Oh, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Listen, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. That's God talking. Only God has the power of life and death. Now listen, as we wind this up. Of course, there wouldn't be any resurrection if there wasn't a crucifixion. And there wouldn't have been a crucifixion if Jesus hadn't loved us so much, and still does. I mean, if our Savior, if it weren't for our Savior's love for us, He would never have died on our behalf. So I guess the real heart of the passage is the love of God. The real heart of the passage is the love of God. I love what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet what, sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, in, you know, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were, you know, cute, uh, you know, just so, so cute and <laughs> cuddly, you know. We all think we're cute and cuddly, by the way. Okay. Gods I don't know why God saved me because I'm a good person. I'm kind of special. you I don't know why he saved you, but I, I know why he saved me. <laughs> got think we don't say it. Kind of think it once in a while, all right um, God doesn't save good people, He doesn't save worthy people, doesn't save cute and cuddly people. He saves sinners and makes them his kids. You know some of you folks here have adopted children god bless you you couldn't have your own or maybe you have your own but you want to do it you have big heart you want to adopt more kids god bless you Um, of course whether you adopt kids or you actually have your own you do your best but you you, you're not guaranteed how they're going to turn out even the best parents have kids that are wayward right and um, especially if you adopt though You know, you pour yourself into this child and they grow up and eventually they take a wrong turn somewhere and they're doing some pretty horrible things. God forbid I'm thinking of this shooter in Florida whose uh, parents adopted him as a baby. I'm sure tried to do their best to love him and bring him up in the right ways and he um, didn't go so well for him. I'm wondering how many parents would have adopted a child if they had known in advance how they would have turned out. God knew us. He knew everything about us before he ever created us. And he is still inviting every person in this room, every person in this world, to come to him. Jesus died for their sins too. Because God wants to adopt you into his family. He knows you. There's no sin you can do that takes him by surprise. It can grieve his heart, but no sin that you do that God says, Oh man, that's it. Well, I never thought you'd do that. Okay, you're done. I'm get out of this, my family. No, obviously not. Because God's love is such where he saves sinners and then he commits himself to those people and says, No, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how badly you blow it, if you walk away from me, I will not disown you. If you belong to me, I will never turn my back on you. I will never disown you. You can walk a million miles away. If the day comes and you say, I want to repent and come back to God, you turn around he's right there. Because the Lord Jesus said, I took my commitment to you seriously. You maybe didn't take your commitment to me that seriously. But when I committed myself to you, I said, better or worse, sickness, health, good times, bad times, whatever it's going to take, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to never leave you to forsake you. That's God's love. You know, one of the greatest hymns ever written on the subject of God's love was written by Frederick M. Lehman in 1917 and simply is called The Love of God. Let me read it to you. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints' and angels' song. It's beautiful, isn't it? There's a footnote to that hymn. A final stanza was added years later that Lehman didn't write. They found this stanza scratched into the wall of a cell in an asylum by a person that was said to have been insane. He finally died, and when they were cleaning out his cell, they found this scratched on the wall. Somehow they knew that he had added it to Lehman's him. Here's what the words this crazy person wrote on the walls of his cell. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He sounds pretty sane to me, doesn't he? I'm wondering who said he was insane, and why they stuck him in that asylum. Did they stick him there because he was a crazy Christian? Someone who didn't go along with the state? Someone who professed faith in God, which in their minds made them crazy because you got to profess faith in the government? I don't know. I think so. Let me tell you this. We as a nation are moving farther and farther from our Christian roots. And because of it, more and more people are becoming hostile to us, to Christianity. In fact, I've actually, and I read this years ago, about maybe five years ago, um, <laughs> by an officer in our military who basically told in a writing that he's big for the state, that Christians posed more of a danger than terrorists or posed the same kind of danger as terrorists. Why? Because we don't worship the state, we worship God. The world thinks that's crazy. But you know, they thought Jesus was crazy. His own family thought he was crazy. You know what the world, if the world, it's, it's getting worse and worse. And I believe more and more people are going to look at you and say you're crazy. Because you follow Jesus. The world will call you crazy. You know what God calls you? Sons and daughters. And you know what? That's all that matters. Selling First Service that years ago, I got a hold of a cassette tape. Not to date myself, but I mean, um, this was a, a tape about a gentleman's ministry. He was a street evangelist. His name was Arthur Blessed. Wow. <laughs> I guess he knew from birth what he was going to be. But anyways, Arthur was one of those people that was unafraid to share the, the Lord with anybody. And so to initiate conversations, he had this big cross, a big cross that he would carry around with him. And it would generate conversations, right? Of course, it also produced a lot of ridicule. Uh, he was telling the story how that many times he'd be walking down the street with this cross. He would go down to L.A. and busy cities, and people would drive by a lot of times and yell, You're a nut! And he would always politely yell back, Yes, but at least I'm screwed onto the right bolt. The world might think you're a nut. Take comfort in knowing you're screwed onto the right bolt. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us in spite of us. When we blow it, we can know that you won't disown us. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. Lord, if that man was crazy in that cell that wrote those beautiful words on that wall, then, Lord, would to God we were all crazy. Give us grace, Lord, to not worry about what the world thinks of us, but only live to please our God. So thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.